0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literature, and also cross-reference to psychoanalysis this week. This is a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lexa Rosian, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to author B. D'Amato about her new book, Triskelp. Bea D'Amato is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. She has written numerous professional professional papers analyzing the psychic conflicts of literary characters and their authors, i.e. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, R.L. Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. Her most recent publication considers the lyrics in Bob Dylan's "Murder Most Foul" from a hypnagogic perspective. She has written extensively about dreams, adoption, and the curative potential of human interconnection through emotional communication. Triscell is her first work of fiction, and it's so exciting. Dr. Damato is also on the faculty of NYGSP, New York. Graduate School for Psychoanalysis, and CMPS, the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. Hello, Dr. D'Amato, Barbara, and welcome to the show.
0: Hello, Lexis. My absolute pleasure to be here with you today.
1: Um, Barbara, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, <laughs> and maybe also your name and your pen name.
0: Ah, okay. That's a, that's a really good place to start. Of course, as a psychoanalyst, I'm sort of rooted in truth and where, who I am. And of course, my name is Barbara D'Amato. And when I went to publish Triskel, much to my chagrin, I discovered there was another author, a published author named Barbara D'Amato. Who had pub- I never
1: even heard of her. I've only heard of you.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love your answer. But unfortunately, she's out there and she's written numerous, numerous novels. So I had to come up with another name. And I really did struggle with it. I thought of changing my name entirely. I thought of just using initials, like um, t- um, um, the one who wrote ha- Harry Potter. I can't. Her name is escaping the RL. Rolly Nolly. Right. I played with different last Irish names, and I thought, nah. I usually sign emails B Damato. I feel comfortable with that. I'm just going to go with B Damato. So that that's kind of how that evolved. A lot of people have asked me about that, and I'm comfortable with that. So that's where the name landed.
1: I think it's a wonderful pen name.
0: Thank you. I think so, too.
1: Um, Anything else you want to tell us about yourself?
0: Well, I've I've done a number of interviews lately, and some people want to know, like, a couple years ago, and some people want to know, like, where I was born. (laughs) (laughs) The sky's the limit with the question, but... As a psychoanalyst and having written a novel about psychoanalysis, I probably would have to say that my entire life experience has influenced the writing of this novel. I mean, I don't think we can write anything that doesn't come somewhere from our history or from our our unconscious, especially when we're writing fiction. So I guess to start, I really do enjoy writing. And I've I've been a psychoanalyst for over 30 years, and I've listened to numerous, numerous people's stories. And I do kind of fancy myself as a storyteller, not necessarily in terms of fiction, but in terms of relaying stories. I love to tell stories to the point that my kids will say, Ma, we heard that one already. (laughs) It's like, oh, come on, (laughs) on, let me tell it again. So fiction was a way to sort of take writing and storytelling and combine them. In psychoanalytic papers that I've written, they're sort of fact-driven, they're treatment-driven, they're based on data and research. When I did my doctorate, it's all research and data-driven, and you have to get it right. With fiction, there's a whole another world where you can go wherever you want. I was preparing for a case uh, conference where I was presenting a case, and as I was writing up the case, it was a patient who'd been in treatment with me for a long time. I was writing it, and I thought, this is so wonderful to look at a case over an arc of probably 20 years, maybe it was a little longer, and to see how the patient grew, how they changed, what influenced them. And I thought, I should write a novel. (laughs) That's kind of where the idea came from. (laughs) And then for a long time after that, I thought, well, I don't know what I would write about. And then one day I thought, I know. I'll write about a priest, a psychoanalyst, and a scandal. Okay. (laughs) And I just started to develop characters. And the story just grew. I mean, I know there are writers who are very interested in writing a draft. I couldn't work that way. I couldn't have that much structure. It would feel like work. So I just Mm -hmm. wrote, and I just wrote. And And I really... On a certain level, believe the story wrote itself. I just kind of followed what, what was coming from my mind, and where the and what I know about character study, and what I know about how human beings relate to each other, the story kind of wrote itself. <laughs>
1: well, you you kind of answered my question, which was I was so curious about your writing process. And also full disclosure, I was uh, one of the lucky ones that got to read the very first draft you were. of this novel. And I've read it again in the published version and it just got better and better. And um, I wondered about your process and what prompted you to write the book. So you've somewhat, somewhat answered that, but Maybe, it's I guess a, I wondered like question. where the characters came from, why a priest and a psychoanalyst? And what well, interested me, uh, one more thing, what interested me so much was it's very early on in the book, the priest character, Paul, f- finds some information about talk therapy and he he says or wonders, prayer has always gotten me through. So I, I wondered if you might speak a bit to prayer and talk therapy and the connection and, and where the priest idea came from.
0: Well, I guess, as I said earlier, everything comes from our history. I mean, I grew up Catholic. I grew up in a, going to Catholic school. We went to church on Sunday. I knew about priests, kind of. And so I wasn't really sure how that was gonna play out. But in the story, I think Paul is becoming a priest because his early childhood trauma scarred him so badly. He eventually is. A, he's estranged from his father, who he finds, and his father has a brother who's a priest, and they get. They have a very strong bond. And for Paul, he decides he's going to become a priest, not necessarily because that was his goal in life, but because he saw that as a safe place for himself, a safe place to defend against any of his urges that he had, any sexuality that he had based on what happened early in his life. So it was a place of safety for him. And then throughout the book, as he runs into this psychoanalyst and wants to get into supervision with her because he's running a mission for Runaways, which of course he had been a Runaway, he starts to get in touch with who he really is. And just through talking with her, he starts to realize, maybe this priesthood business is not for me. I mean, I love Father Casey, my, my uncle, and I. You know, this is a safety here, but I think I want more. So the talking, and we believe this to psychoanalysts, the talking frees us to be who we really are. I mean, life makes, gets us buried under defenses and resistances and fear and shame and all sorts of horrible things. But I really, truly believe psychoanalysis can help people tear that down and see inside who they really are. So I think part of want, wanting to write the book was to show how psychoanalysis works sort of in vivo. The other character in the book, Bethany, has really, really been damaged, much, much worse than Paul. She ended up in foster care. She was abused. Now that's
1: Paul's sister.
0: Paul's sister. And they're separated early in life. They have two different last names, which keeps them anonymous as the book goes along. So she was deeply, deeply deeply traumatized as a child. So she, perchance, meets up with this same psychoanalyst and gets into treatment with her. First, not willingly. But then she sort of thinks, oh, this kind of therapy is different. This person's not pressing me. They're not trying to solve problems. They're just listening to me. Wow. (laughs) I don't know. I
1: think there's there's so much modern psychoanalytic technique woven into the fabric of the novel. I guess I should also disclose that I was a student of yours at uh, NYGSP and CMPS. You taught me my first uh, class there on dreams, and then my most favorite, which was madness in literature. And you really, really opened my eyes to so many things, uh, the way that you taught the madness in literature class. And, you know, just showing all the psychoanalytic aspects, uh, of the wonderful different, um, uh, literature that we've read. And this book, there's so much modern, uh, psychoanalytic technique that's just woven into the fabric of the novel. There's transference, joining, waiting for the contact. And I hope you're going to take this as a, compliment, because I mean it as the highest compliment. I love Irvin Yalom and the Schopenhauer cure, and the way that he explains the way that group technique works through, you know, this very juicy fictional story. Um, And I was reminded of that in your work.
0: Ah, well, the, it, the story is pretty juicy. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of juice in this novel, <laughs> I have to say, but without sex and aggression, what is there? <laughs> what is there? <laughs> it all kind of finds its way in there. I mean, I've had patients say to me, oh my God, what did you write this book? I wrote about life. are talking about? It. I wrote about life.
1: <laughs> you wrote about life. And I love that Lillian is also part of the life.
0: Yes. And she's a flawed character. She's not, I mean, people think you're a psychoanalyst, you become analyzed, and now you're perfectly in control of all your emotions. Oh my God, that's this from the truth. So you see Lillian as a human character who's flawed. She's fighting her own demons. She has lost her very young husband at a very young age. She's struggling. She's going from the field of research psychology into psychoanalysis, which she feels is her true calling. And she's got all sorts of things that she's fighting against along the way too. So I think to see the psychoanalyst as a person who's also flawed, who's also human, who also struggles with conflict and urges and, and various things that get in their way makes the story, I think, that much more relatable because many people have this idea, especially patients, when they come to treatment, they think the analyst has no feelings. They You know, they have no worries about anything, and they're just always in control, which is the farthest thing from the truth. We're human, and it's our humanity that cures the patient.
1: And my analyst always says that you should be able to surprise people when you tell them that you're a psychoanalyst.
0: (laughs) You should have a life. Exactly. (laughs) I find that people get scared if I say I'm a psychoanalyst. They have this idea that psychoanalysts can read their mind there's a little scene in the book where paul meets lillian uh they're in uh port authority and she's accusing him of, of pickpocketing her and then she reveals that she's a psychoanalyst he says what you're a shrink oh my god what a, read my mind so people <laughs> really do respond that way what do you oh no you can read my mind i know <laughs> i can just predict what your character is going to do if i understand your character correctly and I think that's the other thing the novel is trying to show. And also she and Paul have a kind of similar guilt. Right, right. She's, she's guilty about the death of her husband. Paul is very guilty about having abandoned his sister when he left home at the old age of 10, where he had never really been parented. And he finds this haven in this apple farm where his father is. And he's parented for the first time. And He kind of just forgets about her. Which some people said is that really possible? Could that happen? I think so. He'd never been parented. He was so needy. He had he had been Bethany's parent for all of the years of his life. So he thought he you know gone to heaven in this new world where two people, two adult people, were taking care of him, and an extended family of people also, including this priest, who really influenced him.
1: Yeah. Well, it read very true. It oh, made I'm, sense. I'm it it made sense that he would, you know, it was almost like coming for, in reading it and thinking about Paul, it was you know kind of like when the Wizard of Oz becomes in color,
0: right? Exactly. <laughs> like there's a whole nother world out there that I haven't known about. Let me have some. Totally, <laughs> <laughs> totally. And then when he meets Lillian, his whole sort of sexuality started to develop. He was very afraid of women. For, for various reasons, and really just was closed off to it. But by being closed off, he was leaving out a very rich possible part of his life. And again, I think that goes back to what we do in psychoanalysis. We want people to know who you really are. Who who are you really? What do you really want?
1: And, and it just you takes you a You really time do a wonderful job with all the characters in getting oh, them to you. arrive to that place. And I wanted to ask you, so there are some reference, there are some references in the book, uh, some Celtic references along with the Catholic. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Lillian and and her cross uh, mm-hmm. that was given to her by her husband, the, the Celtic cross, and um, and the title, the title, and the yeah. title. So could you talk a a, a bit about that? Uh,
0: yes, I think maybe in the early twenty teens, I went to Ireland for the first time. My mother was Irish. She was born here. Her mother was born here. And my grandmother would always talk about County Cork in Ireland so lovingly. And she'd never been there. My mother had no desire to go. And when I went there, it was like, oh, my God, there's something about this place that's calling me. Like, I want to, like, roll down the hills and roll in the grass. It was like almost psychotic. It was so primitive. I've been to Ireland probably six times (laughs) and can't get there enough. So there was this whole Celtic uh, history in my roots that I knew nothing about because my grandmother's mother, as many, many people of her generation immigrated to this country, they were running away from hard times that they did not want to think about, remember, or go back to. But... I mean, our generation or my generation, three removed from actually being born there. Where where did we come from? Who are we? Who were the people who were there? So that was a very heavy influence upon me. And I needed that to somehow sift its way through the book. A triskel is a Celtic uh, symbol, pre-Christian um, symbol that is a central core with three uh, spirals coming out of it. So in this book, there are three central characters, the psychoanalyst, Paul, and Paul's sister, Bethany, who are very interconnected and who need each other to sort of grow. They don't know it. And this is where the unconscious motivation piece comes in, that they don't know they need each other. And they randomly sort of need each other and meet up together and and really influence each other in a way that i think explains what the unconscious is about people we meet people we were meant to meet we do things that are taking us on a journey that's we're not always aware of why i mean why did i choose to live here why did i choose to take that job everything is sort of leading us to places where we need to get to so i think the triskel was the perfect image of three characters sort of evolving and not knowing where they're going, but in this case, ending up in a better place.
1: Now, was that an image that you started with, the Triskel? Was it an image that came to you in the middle of the writing? Did you write the book and then have to think a lot about what will the title be?
0: No, I think I, I, no, I changed the title. The title was originally My Father's Name. But one of my editors thought this book is, <clears throat> is not about Paul's problem with his father. It's about um, his, his problem with his sister, having lost his sister. But the triscale image was the first tattoo I got <laughs> when I came back from wow. Ireland. Wow. <laughs> it's three. Three, I don't know. You can't see it. It's under my watch. I t- oh, first. how beautiful.
1: Yeah, oh, I'm having- sorry, this is only going to be audio. <laughs> yes, you have to get V. to show you her yeah. triskel
0: tattoo. It's fabulous. But it was so meaningful to me. So that, that kind of eventually evolved its way into the book. I didn't start with that title. It, and it that's evolved. on your
1: left? It's on your left and arm? my left wrist. On my left
0: wrist. Yeah. Side of the heart. Exactly. That's another thing that my patients have shamed me for. You have a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> really? They have so shamed Don't tell anybody. Don't tell okay.
1: anybody. But we won't tell anybody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is part of the psychoanalyst has a life separate from what who they yes. are in the treatment room. Right. For better or for worse. At this for point for in my career worse. it was okay. If I was just starting out and people it might have been different, but at this point in my career, I'm comfortable with who I am. This is who I am.
1: This is who you are. So you have a character who's a priest that's one one leg of the triscale correct. <laughs> the, the character who's a psychoanalyst and the third who's an artist and that was another thing that struck me about your book is that art and psychoanalysis it is it's the book is peppered with historical references to art yes my favorite is donatello's judith and hola fairness i love that you wrote about that piece and so many others so can you speak to this and i have a feeling that i are you
0: is the other half of you italian yes yes no, no actually no i'm italian through marriage the other through half marriage. of me is ukrainian ukrainian yeah. oh
1: how wonderful and deep and i'm sorry for what's happening in that we all are country right now but um I felt a lot of Italian. A lot of Italian artists mentioned, and I was wondering about the art and your relationship to that. And it's so wonderfully woven through the novel.
0: Well, Italy is where all art began. I you mean, know, I have a I have a degree in art history, and I remember in undergraduate, and I remember thinking I have to go to the Uffizi, I have to go to Florence, I have to go to these places. So I've I've made a, numerous trips to Italy, and of course, I've gone to all these fabulous museums. So so art history was a another contributing factor in my creation of this book and in the creation of who I am. I think art is very important. I mean, I've done sculpture, I've done painting, I've done, I've dabbled in art. And I I imagine writing is another form of of dabbling in art. So I do believe art and psychoanalysis have an intersection. And as you said in the intro, I've written a number of papers, uh, psychoanalytic papers, that analyze the characters and the authors of various classical works, how they influence each other. You can't have a work, any kind of fictional work, I don't think, without large pieces of the author going into it. And not not con- necessarily consciously. I mean, people ask me, oh, you're, you're Lillian in the book, right? Like, not really. <laughs> I mean, parts of me are. Mm, mm. But Freud says every character in a dream is part of the dreamer. So likewise, every character in a novel represents some aspect of the author. It's certainly a first novel. I mean, maybe later things would, you get it all out in the first novel, maybe other stuff comes later. But I see myself somewhat in each one of these characters. I mean, there's there are several scenes where Bethany is in in class in an art history classroom and she's having confrontation with the instructor. So, those
1: are wonderful scenes, by the way. Very
0: rich. I, mean, I, I sat in as, classrooms like that, enraptured, enraptured by the art. And here's this silly Bethany making noise and fighting and all the stuff <laughs> she's doing. Like, look at the art and stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of all of this in some way come, comes out of experiences I think that I've had.
1: So you were able to take that, that, that earlier so. experience in your life and put it into the novel
0: Right. And the actual pieces of art, I I thought, symbolized or resonated with what was happening between Bethany and the instructor at that time.
1: Absolutely. So,
0: and I, I thought by putting real pieces of art in here, it would make the book more real, that these things are actual pieces of art. And they were sort of resonating with the conflict between these two characters.
1: So I was also curious about that, because I felt that some things that you wrote about were Sputnitzian, for those who don't know. <laughs> Spot, Hyman Sputnitz, the, the founder of uh, the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. But you, as far as I know, all of the psychoanalytic analytic references, except for a Winnicott quote, were made up names. Is that is that true? And then what yes. was your idea behind that, that you're going to... Kind of, I mean, it, it seemed clear that the techniques were modern, right? But you, you right. were not real about those people and places
0: because right. I didn't want to be promoting a specific school or promoting a specific um, industry or pro- promoting a specific field. Really, I so wanted smart. To be- <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it to be the sort of fictionalized version of something that could and does exist, but mm. but it's not a documentary. I didn't want to be that real. So, yeah, I think that was very purposely disguised, yeah, but I mean, I am a modern psychoanalyst, so in the scenes where Lillian is treating Bethany, I can only respond in the way that I know how to, which I believe is a curative way. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing this quite I believe
1: long. it's a curative <laughs> way too, and i I wonder if you might grace us with with an example of a scene I mean, I'm thinking of several, but I want to know what you might come up with. And if not, I I, I can reference something specifically where, you know, you're, you're writing about the story, but yet you're using or educating about a modern psychoanalytic technique.
0: Right. Because the relationship between Lillian and Bethany in the story is only in the treatment room. That's the only place they relate in the book until the very, very end of the story. So it's all the transference that's developing between Bethany and her analyst, uh, Lillian. And the very first time that they meet and what I think convinced Bethany to stay in treatment was that she wasn't being asked a thousand questions and she was, they weren't setting up goals for her behavior. This woman just listened to her and that, and Bethany was dying for someone to just listen to her. So that is a very big modern analytic, uh, tenet to just sort of be there with the patient. Then as things began to unfold, Bethany, I forget, there was some, she accused accused the analyst of wanting to have sex with her and wanting to rape her. And this is sort of the in vivo where this happens in the room. And the analyst doesn't say, oh, no, no, I would never do that. The analyst says, why would I want to do that to you? And and sort of inquires, which is the curative piece.
1: Because it uncovers a lot.
0: Right. The patient enables her to say-
1: things. Yes. It's and rejected, access,
0: Write Something onto the analyst. If the analyst can accept it, then the patient can go further and something curative may happen. So those were the things that I, I really wanted to, to demonstrate in the, in the treatment sessions, that this is really the stuff that happens and it's not easy. It's painful. It's painful work. It's very
1: painful work. And another thing that I loved, because this is something that you know, you don't actually get to see, even if, uh, you know, if you're writing a case study, for example, it's like, there's only, you only have what's in the room, but in the novel, we get a little bit of what's outside of the room. And I'm thinking like there's several scenes where Bethany is about to just act out in a really horrible way. She's so impulsive, but she remembers, you know, Dr. Lillian's words and telling her to, you know, not to act on her feelings. And you kind of see her behavior change and you, You get to read her mind as she goes through her life. And it's really a wonderful illustration to see what happens in the consultation room. But then because it's fiction, we can also see how Bethany takes that out into the world.
0: Right. It's like a 3D case study. 3D case case study. The the case history is is acted out in the book, in the beginning parts of the book, where we're, we're putting Bethany's character together and seeing how she developed, what happened to her as a child. All these various things that occurred—that she's promiscuous, she acts out, she gets beaten up, she gets raped in the park—because she's in trouble, she needs help, and and her defenses are, I don't need anybody, I don't need anybody's help. And through a whole series of events, she ends up on Lillian's couch and thinks, oh, I could I could talk to this person, and things start to change. Yeah, at one point she's upset about some I forget what some incident with Dr. Corey, the uh, the professor. And she calls. She says, oh, where's that phone number? And she finds Lillian's phone number. And she calls and Lillian actually answers the phone. And she's like, well, good thing you're there because I'm about to go to the park and have 10 guys fuck the, fuck the shit out of me. And Lillian's yeah. like, I'm glad you called. <laughs> so she does, she does something different for the first time.
1: It is really a turning point for her and in the novel right. that she makes that phone call.
0: Right. And she's surprised herself. She does it. And she's surprised that someone answers the phone.
1: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. It's moments
0: like that, that I think in psychoanalysis we live for, here's the shift. Here's -hmm. where the patient's going to let some light in. Here's where the patient's going to say, I I want, I want this help. I don't want, I don't want to get beat up again. It's
1: also really charged and remarkable that, Lillian has the contact with her brother and is supervising him. (laughs) It's just brilliant. I, you know, I imagine
0: that had to come from your own unconscious. I think it did because the book started with Paul and Lillian as characters. And then somehow when I started to describe the childhood, this other character, Bethany, sort of filled in. And then I thought these three are going to have to impact each other. I think the the first line on the back of the novel is, in the unconscious, in the unconscious, coincidence does not exist. So Mm. there are quite a few coincidences (laughs) that happen. Quite a few. But I think each character is taken to these situations that Bethany is in um, the bus depot at Port Authority and happens to run into Paul. And it starts off badly. And then they make a connection. Why did that happen? I, I don't know why. They were both there at that time, and that's what happened. Something drove them there. I think.
1: I think you're right. I also think it's brilliant the way you, as we do, in psychoanalysis, that you know you have him sort of come under a supervisory uh, guidance with Lillian, and there's a scene where she explains transference to him, and right. so it very much reminded me of you know you. You have like, you sit with the patient, but then you go with the supervisor and things are explained. Uh, for example, you know, transference can't be explained to Bethany at that point. Right. Um, well, but you, ever,
0: right. Ever.
1: But you see it, you know, right. you see it happening in the scenes that, that you describe. But there's a scene where you explain transference to Paul to help him work with this young runaway child.
0: Right. Right, because Paul has some attraction to Lillian that he doesn't understand. And some of it is her skill as a, as a clinician that he's in awe of. And it, then at some point in the book, he wants to change the relationship from supervision to analysis so she can help him. And then, of course, she starts to develop feelings for him that she's fighting, and she's fighting them. And and she brings it to her own analysis, and we see those live sessions. And then she brings it to her own supervisor and we see those sessions and she starts to get differing opinions of how to proceed between the analyst and the supervisor. And this, this can happen. And this is the
1: scandalous part of the novel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. She's like, who do I listen to? And she almost feels like she's going crazy. And I don't want, I don't want to give any more of the story away because we
1: won't, we won't give any more of the story away, but I will actually, i Would it be a good idea to read the back of what's written on the book? Yes. So in the unconscious, coincidence does not exist. A bizarre tragedy drives 10-year-old Paul from his dysfunctional home, leaving his younger sister Bethany behind. Paul flees to his estranged father's apple orchard, where he discovers comfort and parenting for the first time. Two decades later, the long lost siblings settle separately in New York City where a gifted psychoanalyst, Lillian, develops independent relationships with them as all three characters search for seemingly unattainable connection while carrying inescapable demons. In Triskel by B. D'Amato, we experience a psychological story that takes us through generations to the research and art departments galleries, and art lecture halls of distinguished Franklin University, an idyllic upstate farm, heart-wrenching therapy sessions, a seminary, and the raunchy crime and drug-infested NYC streets during the early 1980s. A kaleidoscope of settings provides symbolic backdrops for the complex human desires of individuals struggling for emotional wholeness. The story explores the irrational behaviors people embrace and the apparently antithetical yet underlying motives for their actions. Rich dream material furnishes com- complexity and deepens perspective into the conflicts of each character's internal world, all the while asking, where do we find grace? And I do love that, that question and how you go about fulfilling the answer to that question, where do we find grace? And I wonder how the publishing, the completing of the writing and the publishing of this novel has facilitated in you finding grace, because I know it's been a long journey for you.
0: It's been a long time. I mean, I started writing this book probably nine years ago. maybe may be longer. And in the process of trying to get it published, I mean, I finished it pretty quickly. I probably wrote it in a year and a half. And then trying to get published, like oh my god, <laughs> <That is a laughs> very very difficult and lengthy process. You have to be prepared for rejection. <laughs> and there's the the editing process, even before you get to the publisher, i worked with various editors, and they they all had very good input. I mean, I'm not trained as a writer. I, I have there's like lots of stuff I didn't know about that I had to learn. So it's a long, long, long process but I think in a similar way, when I was doing sculpture for about two years, when you do sculpture in clay, then you have a cast made, then you sand it and you, this, the piece changes, but it, that's part of the process. The changing of it is, is improving it, it, it's changing it, something is shifting. So all of those steps are, I think, absolutely necessary. A good editor is beyond necessary and probably several editors with different perspectives to really sort of tweak tweak what you wrote to make it that much better, I think. So it's a long, long process. But from a personal level, I think I was driven, something in me was driven to get this book published. I'm not sure I even know at this point what it is. <laughs> but, And I may have told this story at, at a book reading. My mother had a lost brother that she never talked about. And over the years after her death and finding a series of letters, I discovered he had been killed in World War II. And we never never talked about him. We never knew him. And I brought myself to the cemetery with the help of various professional people. And that seemed like a closure, like there was some kind of intergenerational trauma, perhaps, of a lost brother that was not properly mourned. That was never discussed. He was not carried. So something in this book resolved something there for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I Not all. Right. Right. So, I mean, there, there are just sort of generational material that's unconscious that we all carry. That I think writing probably brings out a lot of that. And we're not even aware that it's there. Or, you know where? When I was writing the book in the beginning, I didn't know where it was going to go, and I wanted to just be open to that. Let me see, you know, where this is going to take me. If I needed a character's name. The first name that came to my mind—that was the name I used. And I just—I didn't sweat over it. I just kind of moved along.
1: Well, I believe that's why it's such a great read.
0: <laughs> I mean, there, were, there was research had to go into it, like when various. Well, of course,
1: but various, you allowed well, your your unconscious to lead.
0: Oh, absolutely. I couldn't have done it any other way. I have writer friends who write strict drafts and they write it out. I thought, oh my God, I would die. I could not write that way. I could, it would feel like a task or some assignment I was doing. So I thought that was not my style. And I just sort of went. <laughs> but th- there was definitely research. How do you, how do you become a priest? I had to read all of the- <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> What else did you have to do research on?
0: I think I I wanted to, um, I researched various things that happened in the 1980s. I mean, there's one point Bethany is on the roof and she's singing, I love New York. And that was a slogan in the 80s from, I don't know, some governor of states, uh, governor of New York. And I looked that up to make sure that was right. And sort of uh, Times Square was very grungy in the 1980s. So I wanted that backdrop. I didn't want it to be current. I didn't want cell phones in it. I didn't want even, I didn't want anything like that in the book. So I went back far enough. Just a whole lot of things. I had pull hitchhiking on some road up in some town. I wanted to get an exact route, an exact city.
1: <laughs> yeah, and all that rang really true. And I also love that the book does kind of go to between the '60s and the '80s. Yeah, correct. Right? Right.
0: Yeah. The childhood and and then the adulthood. Twenty years later. Yeah.
1: And you really feel you can. That must have been
0: well researched because it felt very. All felt very real. Um, And I I think this is the heart of psychoanalysis: that our childhood, we carry it with us. If, If it was as traumatic as Bethany's and Paul's were, perhaps even if it wasn't, we all carry stuff that's unresolved. That, that we are not our true selves if we don't explore it and see what defenses we have put up to avoid pain, to avoid things that have happened. So again, it always would come back to the idea that psychoanalysis is to help people discover who they are, tear away these phony selves in these destructive behaviors to see what is screaming under there that wants to come out and be heard.
1: Mm, beautiful. I also, um, and I, I, I'm sure... This must have been unconscious, but maybe not, maybe planned. So I think there are 48 chapters uh, in the book. And they're short, shorter chapters on the shorter side. But sometimes I felt like, you know, like there would be a psychoanalytic session with Bethany. And then the next chapter maybe goes to 20 years earlier, or maybe goes to Paul, or maybe goes to Lillian's life. But I started at some point to get a feeling of it's almost like. Being an analyst, in a, you know, you spend 50 minutes with a person and then you, at least in the modern tradition, you have wait to, wait to wake until you get another installment, um, <laughs> you know. So it had that kind of a feeling, uh, like you you get some information and then it goes somewhere else and then it comes back. And I really enjoyed that. And I wondered if that were totally unconscious or if there was some conscious construct in there. But it sounds like you just let it roll out.
0: Yeah, I think it was unconscious that something would sort of come to a crest and then it would stop and then we'd move on to the other character. And then that was something would crest there and we'd move on to the other character. That all these sort of different pots were percolating at the same time. And somehow they were going to sort of merge somewhere, which eventually I think they did.
1: (laughs) They definitely did. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, anything else you want? Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. I, so I'm really curious about, and I know you've said you're not a writer, but you know what? You're, you've taught literature for so many years and you teach it brilliantly. So I'm wondering about who your influences are.
0: You know, I one of my editors said to me, Well, what novels are you reading right now? I was like, I don't read novels. I read second <laughs> papers. What? what okay, and I, I don't go to the movies, but occasionally there's a movie that will say you must see like I have to see Barbie and I have to see Oppenheimer. I have to see these two Yeah, movies. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I had to mm-hmm. read I read Godot, I had Beckett I'm madly in love with. So a lot of the classic literature. I'm very um, enamored with. I think when I was doing my dissertation, which I did on dreams, I read a lot of literary criticism and a lot of um, uh, criticism of classic pieces. And I thought, this is so fascinating. I remember my first ch- my chair of my dissertation said, "You aren't a literature major, Barbara. Why not?" <laughs> like I don't know I was a biology, ma- I don't know why. <laughs> I probably should have been a literature major) <laughs> I think at that point in my life, it was too many words. I didn't want to listen to any words. I just wanted to do science. And But the true me probably should have been, um, I probably should have studied literature. <laughs> so I picked it up later in life.
1: <laughs> well, you picked it up well. I mean, I still carry that course with me. Um <laughs>
0: That that course, I must say, after I taught that course, I swore I could never teach it again because it was so wonderful. Mm -hmm. But as you know, we are teaching it together in the fall. And I am very excited about that. You know, Triscale is going to be on the syllabus. Oh, amazing. (laughs) What a coincidence. What a coincidence.
1: Well, I think it's really such a wonderful example of uh, literature and psychoanalysis and modern psychoanalysis. I mean, it really truly is. Um, <clears throat> do you want to write another novel?
0: I do. I, I started another novel a while ago and then when this one became, started to get published, I was overwhelmed with book stuff. So I mm. haven't really looked at it, but it's, it's another novel. It's, it's different. It's called um, The Keys to the Castle and it's it's about it's an adoption story of a secret adoption from Ireland, and there's going to be some magic in it. I mean, I'm very much interested in Irish and Celtic mythology.
1: Oh, so you're going to go deeper with that. I'm excited about that.
0: It's not going to be so dark, but it's going to have hmm. more sort of magic to it. <laughs> so it's going to be different.
1: How wonderful. How yeah, wonderful. It, I mean, it's
0: so much fun to write a novel. The awful part is trying to get it published. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you should have an easier
1: time I the second so. time around. Of course. So. Of course. So. Um, should we
0: let people know your website, bdemoto.com? Mm-hmm. That's that's my website, and that's where you can find ways to purchase the book. I'm working on an Audible version. I don't know how long that's going to take. It's very slow going. Would but you be a- reading it yourself? Yeah, that's my plan. Nice. Yeah. Wonderful. But there's there's a, a paperback copy and a Kindle version out now. And hopefully and, the audible will be coming soon.
1: So that's B D A M A T O dot com, And also right. Amazon, right?
0: Well, it'll take you to Amazon if you it'll go to It'll take my website, you to right, Amazon.
1: You can, okay. And Amazon. Yeah. the book is Triskel T-R-I-S-K-E-L E. Correct. Um Anything else you're working on or that you want to talk to and tell us about?
0: <laughs> it's August, so I'm trying to lay low. <laughs> <laughs> but September's coming. September's coming. So August is a wonderful month. I mean, my birthday is in August. I'm not working. I'm, I'm unscheduled. I see people that I haven't seen in months. So August is a wonderful month. So
1: Happy birthday. Happy belated <laughs> birthday.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And then on to, on to more things.
1: On to more things. So you're working on the new novel, yes. And you're teaching.
0: And I'm teaching. Are you touring with this book, or or? I've I've been doing a lot of podcasts. I did a couple of readings, and I've gone to various bookstores with the book. So it's low. I mean, I'm not Michelle Obama. I wish I I wish somebody (laughs) wanted to promote my tour around the country, but I've done a bunch of things, and I'm I'm really quite gratified by it. So I'm really, I've really been enjoying it. It's a very gratifying experience to publish this novel. Absolutely.
1: And is there, are there any book signings coming up?
0: Uh, at the moment there aren't, but I will, I'll keep you posted. The, I've, okay. I've been doing a bunch of podcasts, which I have on my Instagram link. And that okay. is, I should tell you what that is. Yes. It's underscore novel. That's my, my book, my Instagram uh, link for my book. Triscale
1: underscore novel. No, yeah.
0: That's the Instagram account. Yeah. So there's a bunch okay. of readings and interviews on there that people could look at if, if they're interested at all.
1: You mean you reading chapters
0: from the book? Right. Or doing, or doing interviews. Or doing
1: interviews. Yeah. Okay. I was at one of your book signings and you did yeah. read a chapter and it was very lovely. So yes, I think you it. um, it's wonderful that you, uh, you want to do the audible recording
0: Oh, I think so. I wouldn't be happy with anybody else. This is my narcissism. I wouldn't be happy with anybody else's voice on it but my own. Well, I don't,
1: you could say it's your narcissism, but it's also, you know, certain intonations. Actually, the another interview I did, her book was being translated into Spanish and then she didn't uh, like at all uh, the words that were chosen. And so she, her next project was to translate the book into spanish herself i mean she's from argentina so she's a spanish speaking person but it makes sense it's your work and you know the, the intonation of the way that you would read it not the way someone else would read it
0: i also think people who who read the book or listen to it like to have the author's voice not like to else. have the
1: author's yeah. voice yes yeah. if they can
0: yes when i i listen to mostly to audible books i do cuz i just don't like to read i'd rather be i'd rather listen to the story and have the book to follow along the reading is not so hard on your eyes and it's, I always like it better when it's the author.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, <clears throat> we
0: have a couple of
1: minutes left. Uh The new book sounds like a great project. The Audible sounds like a great project. You just enjoying August sounds like the best
0: project of all. Yes, but in December there's not enough hours in the day anymore. Exactly.
1: So I want to thank you for your time and for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And again. Sorry. Thank you so
0: much. It was my pleasure talking to you. You're, you're such a wonderful interviewer. It's quite good.
1: <laughs> Thank you. And again, I want to remind everyone of your website, which is BDamato.com, B-D-A-M-A-T-O.com. And I just want to give you the last couple of minutes to say what, whatever you'd like to say about the book or to our audience.
0: Uh, I, I just think the last thing I would like to say is I hope the book captured what psychoanalysis is and the value that psychoanalysis has if somebody really wants to work on themselves because it's a treatment that's very different from a lot of other modalities where the analyst is really following the patient's lead and staying with the patient so the patient can say what they're ready to say when they're ready to say it. I I just think that's the most invaluable thing that a person can do is to be in a treatment like that where they feel completely listened to. It's enormously therapeutic. It was for me in my process anyway.
1: Well, it was for me, too, in my process. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you. And all the best to you. Thanks. And from New Books, signing off.